0: Welcome to the 17th episode of On The Grid, a podcast dedicated to the Valley of the Sun. This podcast is a place where you can come to meet the creatives and newsmakers taking this metropolis to the next level, a place you can learn about what's really happening in Phoenix. My name's Philip Haldeman, and I'll be your host. It's funny how people say, oh, I can never be an actor, or, oh, I I hate speaking in front of people. Well, this episode's guest was once afraid of those things, man of many talents Ashley Naftool. Like so many fears, public speaking it is pretty much an irrational fear. What's the worst that could happen? You're not running into a building burning to save somebody. It's acting. And it's a craft that you can learn and get good at. And how do you get good at something? You work at it. And that is exactly how Ashley Naftool has emerged from the downtown art scene. By trying different things, learning what he's good at, and then doing those things. And where did he do much of his experimentation? at a little theater in downtown Phoenix called Space 55. It's a place where so many have gone to cut their teeth at acting and writing and directing to conquer those fears, a home for fledgling and experienced artists. Unfortunately, it will be leaving its home in downtown Phoenix because the land it sits on was bought, like so many creative spaces before it. And so, we have Ashley Naftool on the show, whose play, called Ear, based loosely on Vincent Vago, will be the last major show put up at Space 55. He's here with me to talk about that and the imprint that Space 55 has left on an art community and city that looks much different today than when it first opened in 2006. Ashley, thanks for being on the show.
1: Well, I'm glad to be here.
0: Cool. I uh, I want to definitely hear about Ear and Space 55, but I also want to learn a little bit about you. You grew up in Arizona, went to Scottsdale, or you grew up in Scottsdale. What high school did you go to?
1: I went to Horizon High School.
0: Horizon High School
1: home of the huskies.
0: Did you like it? Eh. <laughs> well, first of all, I actually have to I have to share this because you had told me earlier I wanted to describe this cuz you I asked you earlier on and you uh, described your kind of upbreaking your youth in terms of a recipe and it was like you broke it down like this. It was 16 ounces of bullying or, or a small size polar pop and that's a Circle K reference obviously. <laughs> Three servings of upper class privilege, two dollops of bookworming, a dash of fine of dinosaur fixations, and a garnish of French ancestry. So so how much of that is you today? Uh
1: a pretty good chunk. Yeah. I mean, I kind of gave up my dreams. Like I when I was a kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist, like really, really bad. And like I know a lot of kids have a dinosaur fixation, but like, I knew like the, the genesis. I knew like all the family trees. Like I was obsessed with becoming like a dinosaur hunter and that pretty much so went was like away. Around
0: Jurassic Park time, maybe. Oh, this like. Let's
1: put it this way: I was one of those kids when I watched Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. I was a nitpicker mm-hmm. in the audience, being like, "Well, actually, a Dilophosaurus is much bigger than that." Nice, yeah. I was really an insufferable like dinosaur geek, but uh, not so much anymore. I still think they're fascinating, but it's not like.
0: Well, you can't keep all your childhood, uh, you know, longings and whatnot. I guess, but you grew up. Obviously, did the bullying part stick to you? Uh, did
1: that? Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean. Basically, growing up, I was kind of like the perfect like uh, the, I think the perfect combination of traits for a bully because I was a fat kid, I was extremely shy, I had an effeminate voice so like oh he's probably gay, uh, I had a girl's name Ashley, um, and I was yeah, and I was a super nerd. I read books all the time, mm. so all those traits basically meant like I got mocked like every day on the dot. Mm. So up until the, probably the eighth grade, it was constant. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely has an effect in terms of how I socialize with people. and But on the bright side, it also kind of taught me to be more self-sufficient. Like, I focus more on books and on this culture and not really care about the approval of other people. So there were some good, good side effects of dealing with that kind of... Uh... Did the, your creativity play into that? Did... Uh...
0: Was there a spark there? Like, what, like what, were you really young when you first had your first creative inkling, or did that come later?
1: Uh, I was really young. I, I, I used to, I mean, I read a lot of books as a kid. Like, I was a huge Stephen King nut. I read a lot of science fiction books, like the Hyperion books. And I'd often, like, think of sequels in my head of, like, like here's how I continue the story. Here's, you know, here's what I would do if I was, like, writing the next Star Wars series. So I'd create these elaborate fan fictions so that I, I wouldn't actually write them. But, like, I had these, like, elaborate mythologies i keep in my head. And after a while, I started creating my own stories. I had these, like, these spiral notebooks I'd fill up with like, like fantasy stories. Like, here's the setting. Here it's like all the magical weapons. Here's the, the pantheons of the gods they worship. And it's just, it's kind of me having a, this huge Tolkien phase in high school, right? Just made up all this elaborate stuff. And I got into role playing too at the time, so it kind of fed that as well.
0: So the um, the creativity, the part, the part of actually like writing it down, would you say that kind of started when you were in high school, or?
1: Yeah, at the time of high school, I wrote a lot, and. I, I stress this a lot of bad poetry. Sure,
0: ton, I get that ton, too. Absolute time. I was when I lived in California, a lot of bad poetry. But you have to go through that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. To get to the good stuff, on I guess you know. Absolutely,
1: I mean, we know our bodies produce shit, so creativity is the same way. <laughs> exactly.
0: So was writing kind of your first, first love, first kind of like artistic endeavor?
1: Oh yeah, I, I, I mean, because
0: obviously, I mean, for people that don't know you, 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 I mean, you're a creative guy. You, you act and you direct uh, plays and stuff like that but I want to lay down that it sounds like writing is kind of like the first thing that kind of cr- first your creative your first creative endeavors were with writing is that right
1: um uh, i actually used to draw a lot when I was a kid okay all right and yeah, i actually yeah. was pretty good at it until like i think it was like the fifth sixth grade i stopped entirely okay and i actually didn't pick it up again until about three years ago i started oh, wow. chalk drawing I, I don't know why oh, yeah I just, but I, I just gave up on it for a long time and just they really gave a lot of thought to because it because
0: people that aren't familiar with Space 55, which is which is the show where your show is going to, is at right now, um, you um, consistently provide a new sketch. It's usually each weekend, right?
1: Uh, not, not lately. It's kind of just been more. Than I feel like True, it. But in the yeah. past it used to be like, it like every week there'd be a different one.
0: Okay, so the the draw the drawing thing came back. Any idea why why it came back after so many years?
1: Honestly, uh, it's because we had the chalkboard and we weren't really updating it, so I kind of just did it, and I wasn't very good at it. But um, Nicole Dunlap, who was working at The Space of Time, one day she brought in these really nice chalks in this company called Prang. And they were like really colorful and they're nice. I, I just want to play with them. So I started kind of playing with the chalks and drawing. And after a while, like, the the, the drawings they did start getting more elaborate. Like, at first they were literally like um, stick figures, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they were not more sophisticated beyond that. And eventually it got to the point where I could actually draw stuff that almost looks realistic or, like, or look actually pretty. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I wouldn't be embarrassed to share with people.
0: Right. And I have to admit, they definitely added um, a level of traction to the show or whatever show you were doing at the time, you know? Because it was like, it was like, a, it was kind of eye-catching and it also kind of like, it made you inquisitive about what's going on at Space 55. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's cool that that, it's funny that how things will come back to you. Like, I kind of did the same thing. Like, I do it a little bit when I was younger, but, and then I do it a little bit. I didn't do it for years. Well, actually, I didn't write for a number of years and then yeah. I came back and wrote. So. You never know kind of where those creative sparks are going to come from. Um, at what point did you get involved with theater?
1: Late in life. Um, okay. Actually, when I was growing up, I had like zero, and I mean zero ambition to be a performer. I had, to put in context, in my senior year of high school, I actually was almost held back for a year because I had a record number of intentional absences. And the reason for my absences is whenever we do like a book report, or a public presentation, I would like bail. Cut public.
0: Some, you had to do something public. Yeah, if there's public speaking involved, really? I would just
1: bail on the class. That I would not so show crazy. up. I was terrified of, like, doing any kind of public speaking, public performing. I hated the idea of it.
0: You know what's funny is, and i was just been thinking about this lately, is that I um, was the same way, too, in high school. But the high school drama teacher came after me in my freshman year because they had to fill this role that was really small. And I was a really small guy in high school. And they got me to do this role. It's in the musical Camelot. But I was freaked out. I didn't want to do it. I was the same way that you (laughs) were. Kind of like I didn't want to give – I didn't want to give, like – you know um reports in front of class, but then that changed everything, so is there something that changed you
1: in yeah actually, public uh two things uh the first was in my mid twenties I went to the phoenix uh it was Phoenix Film Festival mm-hmm. I think it was like two thousand six, and they were screening "Hi, my name is Ryan, the Ryan Avery oh, sure, documentary. Yeah. And,
0: and by, by the way, Ryan Avery is a local artist
1: here, and he's getting a lot of renown at the time because he's doing a lot of performance art right. and he's in a punk band. He's also a Mormon, so he would go on his missions to like Portland, and so he's kind of this unique and kind of weird figure in Phoenix. And I kind of went to I went to the he went this, to go and see the movie. Yeah, the and I time. and I didn't know him. I didn't really know anybody. Like I, I was going to shows the trunk space at the time, but I didn't actually know anyone. And watching the documentary is kind of kicking the balls because uh, here's this guy who's like not even like 20 and he's like in literally like 20 bands he's done this ridiculous amount of stuff in his life and i remember just sitting there watching that film being like what have i done exactly like what what the hell i'm like i'm like 25 and i've done absolutely nothing with my life aside from go to work every day go home watch movies like i have done nothing wow and watching that film kind of it kind of rattled something out of me and because because i think if, if it was not a local person i wouldn't have cared because You know creative people are happy doing stuff in chicago and new york all the time but knowing there's somebody in my backyard a guy i would see at shows sometime living this kind of dynamic interesting creative life it's like what's my excuse for not doing the same thing i couldn't think of one so what did you do well i signed up for um i went back to college i went back to uh, uh, sec because originally i was gonna be like i'm gonna go into filming so i took some film editing classes which were just (laughs) abysmally dreadful like they were boring as hell Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it. But I found out that Kim Porter was doing um, some writing workshops 65, playwriting workshops.
0: Yeah, Kim Porter's a local uh, playwright, yes.
1: Uh, and I didn't have an ambition to write plays, but I wanted to write screenwriting. And I thought, oh, screenwriting, playwriting, they're similar creatures. So I went, I started taking her workshop, and that got me interested in doing theater. And that kind of was what steamrolled it. It got me interested in, like, solo performing and acting. Like, it all kind of sprung from those initial workshops. And also uh, taking some improv classes at the Torch. Okay.
0: Cause you do a lot of work in the central Phoenix area. And so that kind of got you involved with those, basically the central Phoenix kind of art community, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And how has that experience been for you? Because the Phoenix art community has definitely grown over the years and more, I mean, it's in terms of, um, you know, visual arts, uh, improv, theater, music, everything. So how is that, how is your involvement in
1: all that um, played out? (laughs) It's it's hard because there's like, I mean, when we talk about the idea of the arts community, like, I think there's more like eight or six, eight or 10 different factions that live in Phoenix. So it's like all these different tribes. And over the years, like, I kind of rotated from group to group, right? I, I used to do a lot of stuff with the trunk space. And for a couple of years, I was really big in the improv. I mean, I loved taking classes and seeing shows. Like when The Torch was still at D5, I used to go every weekend and watch their improv shows. And the firehouse was actually a big influence on in my life because that was a place where I could go. You know, I could sleep in their backyard, and we had these big, weird, druggy <laughs> shows, and they were fun. Sometimes they were <laughs> terrible shows, and sometimes people would be drunk on stage and it would be a train wreck. But occasionally, you watch these shows in the middle of the night, where it's you know, it's an outdoor stage, you know, a bunch of people on stage who've never acted before in their life, and they do something where you're like, "That's beautiful." And so, I think that's what I think like. that people by Phoenix is that there are all these different groups that I encountered full of people who weren't pros. They were, they didn't go to Juilliard, they didn't go to a, a university to get an MFA and what they were doing. They were just people who were like, I'm a poet, I'm gonna go read my stuff out, I'm gonna st- stuff in public, or I'm a comedian and I'm gonna start this sketch comedy troupe or whatever. There's that feeling of people would just be self-starters. They would just do their thing, and it wouldn't matter if they had the training or the, the bona fides to do it, they would just do it.
0: So seeing all these people um, in the downtown arts community doing their own thing without a care of anything else, that kind of gave you permission to do the same thing, so to speak?
1: Yeah, uh, that, that, that's one of the reasons why. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And so what were some of the, the different art things that you sort of tried that were new to you, I guess?
1: <laughs> a lot. Um, I started doing performance art. Like, I did this one piece that I actually was still really proud of. Um, we did a show called Teatro Caliente, which like this annual uh, the performance art workshop that Chris Danowski did in downtown. And I, I did this bit where I turned myself into a human voodoo doll. So obviously, I basically I basically handcuffed myself to a chair and I gave people in the audiences pins with little notes so they could they could they could do um they could write themselves wishes or curses and they could pin them on me. And it was actually kind of like, it was one of those things like I didn't know how the audience was gonna react because I'm like I'm bound to a chair, I'm wearing a um a hood and I'm wearing a headphone, so I cannot see or hear anything. So for all I know audience, to come and start stabbing me. But what happened is I'm like bound to the chair for three minutes, and they would come up and they were like pull up the fabric of my shirt and they would just push the pin through there. So I actually get injured except for one person, which was, which I found out was Ernesto later. Like he actually dug it into my sternum. But it was a, so I love doing stuff like that or just kind of these fun little experiments. But I also yeah. did um, a lot of poetry. I did some slam for a little bit, puppetry. Like I did this show called Hollis's Traveling Treehouse over at 65 with my friend Kevin Flanagan, where we did this mock uh, Pee Wee Herman type show. And the key was like the main character and I did all the puppets, so I had like five to ten puppet characters, and every episode, like I would do their bizarre voices, or like I was like terrible at doing actual puppetry, like the actual mechanics of doing a puppet, but I could do the voices pretty well.
0: A lot of people just do one thing, kind of stick to what they're good at or whatever, like, because you tr- tried so many different things. Where does that, where does that impetus even come from, you know?
1: Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I think to me, it's almost like food in the sense that. Part of how you discover a palette and what you like is by trying different things. And I think creatively, I started experimenting as a performer. A lot of it was figuring out like what I'm good at what I'm not. Like, mm-hmm. I did puppetry for a while. I'm not a good puppeteer. Like, so I'm not, you can leave that behind, yeah, so to speak? Exactly. Like, I, I can feel comfortable putting that aside because it's not something that called to me. Improv is something that I really enjoy, but it's also not something that I do all the time. So it's one of those things where it's like, if I'm not doing long form improv every month, I'm okay. But there are other things I found that I'm like, okay, this is what I really resonate with. And that's what that's meaningful to me. So I must pursue all that. I think, you know, I think one of the things that's nice about Phoenix, too, is a lot of people in this town are like what I call hyphens. They're not one thing. They're like, like Kevin Patterson's a great example of a guy who's like, he was a poet, but he was also a filmmaker and he was also an actor. And, he, you know, he so he was like five or six different things. I feel like they'll do that because it's their way of trying stuff out until they realize, okay, this is what I'm really good at. I'm going to focus on that. But you can't really know that until you try a bunch of other stuff.
0: Is there an element of the challenge there that? you want to be challenged maybe does that have anything to do oh yeah that
1: That too of course yeah Yeah, it's like I mean I I can't really understand it's hard for me to relate to people who are just like I just do this one thing creatively I've never done anything else where it's like I think even if you do something else and it's bad I think you learn something from that and I think different disciplines feed each other Mm -hmm. so I think as an actor there's certain principles that there's certain things I've learned as a performer that I take with me when I'm a writer and as a writer and vice versa like there's like they're all different disciplines, but I think there's certain things you learn about yourself and about humanity that that kind of inform each other, each, each of those practices. You mentioned learning about yourself through through failure and success. Is there an
0: introspective part of you that that you thrive on?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's. I
0: mean, performers are. There's this misconception that performers are are over the top and that they're that they're very extroverted, but most are not. You know. Oh no! Yeah, no, that's totally Many true. Many least, like,
1: yeah, absolutely true. Like, um, I actually went to a a family reunion about a week ago, 40 people at a big party. I loathed it. Like, I did not want to go do that. And people were like, why are you worried? Like you do show in front of like a hundred people and you don't sweat. And it's like, that's different. Like to me, like when, when, you're, like, when you're on a stage, it's like this open space where you could do whatever the hell you want. And it's everything's permissible. Or as soon as you're off a stage, it's like it's different. Mm. So yeah, I'm like, I can be an open, outgoing person when I'm in that context, but when I'm like, Hang out with people, unless I know somebody really well, like I usually get a little bit nervous because, like, I'm not. I kind of always had this feeling in life that there was like a social manual that everyone else got and I didn't get the book. So I didn't do the homework. So I'm, I'm just not quite as up on my cues and uh, on how to do small talk and that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> so, uh, at what point did you actually get involved with Space 55?
1: Uh, well, it started about. I saw my first. The first time I saw a show there it was actually they did a production called Ubu Ra by Alfred Jerry. And that was like, mid 2000s and, and i and at the time i went there i saw the show this is actually before the kim porter thing i saw the show there and i was like i was blown away by how punk and weird the show was so i'm like okay this space is on my radar so i come back and i see more shows there and they have this they have they have this regular series called seven minutes in heaven which is something which is what i actually, I actually run that now by the time like it was a show that shauna franks who founded the theater she started the series where the premises. Anyone, literally anyone, could get seven minutes on stage to do whatever the hell they want the show. And it's it, it ran the gamut from like musical numbers and comedy to this one guy who was a, a naked stage magician. He would just David Douglas, who just come on stage, stood totally nude, and he would play hide the ping pong ball or hide the egg. <laughs> and it was, it was actually really impressive because like you, you, you because there's only two places you could hide it and you never guessed the other place. It was always his armpit. <laughs> you, you never think it's the armpit, but it always. But was. this
0: guy, I know. Yeah, I'll, unfortunately, I was never lucky to see this show. A show with I've seen plenty of seven, seven minutes versions, but I never yeah. saw this guy. And I've heard about it, obviously. But like, like this was like an obvious draw for the for the show. But but the whole seven minutes um, series was one of the space 55's biggest draws because anybody could do whatever they wanted he you never you never
1: knew what to expect and it was very live you know oh yeah i, I used to, I, I like to call the show the island of misfit x mm-hmm. because there's performance pieces that people can't do anywhere else that don't make sense but they can do here like um when clifton gray and like a lot of torch people did it they did an italian opera of the wizard a few years ago that was incredible it's like it's like a seven minute. Italian language musical about an '80s film. Where else are you going to do that? It, nowhere else does it make sense. But anyway, the, the show. So you got involved through that was was that your first show that you were? Was it was um, the seven minutes thing? The first? Yeah, because okay. uh, they, they had an open sign up and I, just as an impulse, like again, I had, I had not really ever performed before. Uh, I signed it, I signed up for a slot and I talked to my friend Kevin Flanagan, who came involved in the space for a while, and we're like, hey, why don't we do, like, do a sketch? Let's do like a comedy sketch to see what happens. So it came up with this bit called uh, "Drinking of Panache and Gusto." where I played... Where it was like a cable access show. We were both wine critics. But the conceit was, I was this debonair swab host, and he was literally a trash hobo. But what we ended up doing for a while. Like we did like every seven minutes after that. We would sign up, and we'd do different different bit. Okay. Different characters. Eventually, we started doing solo numbers by ourselves. But that's kind of how I got involved, was by like doing a lot of seven minutes, and I started volunteering. And because I knew Kim, she invited me to join Space D5's writers group, which these group playwrights I meet there every week to work on their stuff. And then one day... um. The space did a series of plays called "The Unhappiness Place" by Greg Codis, who wrote "You're in town, and they submitted that play to the Fringe Festival in New York and it got accepted. and they said, "Hey, why do not you come with us and be our flyer boy? like you can go we'll take you can go to New York and you can just hand out flyers for the show. so I went with them, and that was kind of like my that's kind of like me being jumped into the game, oh wow, okay. going with them. that's cool, so then after that I was kind of part of the family,
0: right, right. So many people have come through the doors of space fifty five u of a just bought the land there, right? yeah. And so they are going to basically raise the building and
1: put something new there, right? I'm pretty sure this is gonna happen. I mean okay. again I don't know how to put the confirmation of it, but it's like I don't really see them repurposing the building at right. this point. Right. Um so there so
0: there is a plan they're looking to find another home, but like what does space fifty five mean to you? <laughs> because this is a very this is um um like i said so many people come in and out the doors of this place so yeah. many people have but um been on stage people that have never acted before started acting there so there's a lot of there's a lot of history there um when you talk about the downtown arts scene so what does it mean to you because and you are now
1: you're part of the troupe obviously mm-hmm. right it's 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 really hard to overstate the space's influence on me like if I if I never got involved with the theater, I'd be a probably a rack of a human being. Because of them, like I I got into acting, performing, and public speaking, and as a writer, like it, it took me from being a person who just sat around saying, oh, you know, maybe I'll write, to be somebody who actually like writes stuff for real. I mean, I even got my job at the New Times because I, I knew Kim Porter and she knew people there, and I was able to get my foot in the door. So it it, it gave me actual like the, like, like actual employment, career opportunities like literally every romantic relationship I've had has been through people I knew in the space. <laughs> uh, and just also just a sense of community. Um, like I'm not somebody who's loyal to institutions in general. Like I, when I was growing up, I almost never slew the flag if I could avoid it. Like I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not a joiner by nature. The space is like the only group I've known in my life where I'm like, I'm a loyalist. Like to me, like I'm, I'm a theater's guy. Like, so long as it exists, it's my hope to be a part of it in some in fa- com- some capacity.
0: What can you say about its future? Um, they're looking for another home. What 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 do you know at least
1: about that? I know we're 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 looking pretty aggressively. Like like the like Dwayne Daniels, who's artistic director, and the board of directors are basically every week they're going out there. They're looking at different buildings. They're looking all around the valley. Like we're trying to stay in like the Phoenix area, like between like 16th Street and Grand, ideally. But we're also open to finding whatever. Like realistically, with the way gentrification is going in Roosevelt Row, it's just too expensive in that area for us to find something that that we could actually afford. So we're so we're at, so we're stretching a little bit outwards to see what else we can find. And for us, you know, it's like it's sad. I mean, we've had that building for about eleven years, but also the building was quite frankly crap. Like we had terrible AC. Uh, it was kind of gross. It's very I mean, a trunk space
0: story in that, in that sense. Exactly.
1: It, 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 we, we, we've been wanting to move for a while. And now it's like we're in a position where we have to. So, it's, it's, so, so in that sense, that's a silver lining in it. Like it's, it's encouraging us to do a move that we wanted to do. We kept putting off for whatever reason.
0: In recent years, you've seen downtown change. Um, oh, yeah. Um, investors, whoever has come into downtown Phoenix and dumped a bunch of money into it, bought bought up a bunch of the land and basically you see like a classic case of gentrification. Now, now it's too expensive for a struggling artist or an artist in general to be able to live on Roosevelt row. Whereas that's all it was five, 10, 15 years ago, you know? So, I mean, this is like, I mean, this has been happening in front of your eyes for the last, for the last 10 years,
1: at least like, what do you, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? It's just one of those things where it's like, on one hand, it's profoundly sad, because um, I, I really generally miss the nights where you could go on Roosevelt Row and it'd just be teeming with life. Where it almost like it was almost like the Maasai of Phoenix, where it's like you have all this scum in the village just hanging out on the lawn by conspire. Um, there, I miss the firehouse or like stuff like or random art happenings, like when they when the when they built a pirate ship out of shopping carts. Like literally, it was like a, a giant towering structure and we rolled it down the street. And because the neighborhood, nobody gave a shit about the neighborhood, we could do stuff like that and we wouldn't get hassled. And I think now it's like, it, it's sad, but it's also, it, it was inevitable. I mean, you could see it I, even before we got that, you know, best neighborhood in America or whatever award that, that, that happened a couple of years ago. Like it was inevitable that Roosevelt Row was being gentrified. And we got lucky because of the recession, it slowed down for a while. But in the last couple of years, it picked back up, and yeah, it's like it sucks seeing venues like Lawn Gnome go, or seeing the Firehouse go. But it's like, it's also just nothing lasts. Nothing it, lasts, yeah. And all the old timers, we you know, <laughs> everybody's nostalgic about a venue. Like right. when I first started working downtown, it was the Willow House. The Willow House was the venue that everybody would cry into their beer about.
0: We used to come. I went. I grew up in the West Valley. I went to Greenway High School. We'd come down. We'd come down to the Willow House, you know, on a weekend, you know.
1: I know. It It was the place. It was the place. I and mean, once it closed, they became Conspire and it was old trunk space. And so all these venues. Oh, God, know. it's like it's like happened time and time again. Exactly. You
0: know? But, you know, and there is opportunity. I mean, the, the best way to look at it for me is say, hey, in a situation like that, there is opportunity. What is next? You know, um, we don't know what that answer is per se. But something good always springs from something not so good. Usually, at least I like to believe so, you know.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole. Like, oh, you know, recession nails the artist down. Hopefully it'll pop up in a different place.
0: Oh, down. totally. I totally believe that. So Ear is next. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing right now for you. Um, Ear is a play that you wrote. Mm-hmm. It has to do with Vincent van Gogh. So take it from there.
1: Sure. Uh, I started working on it about a year and a half ago. Um, and it actually was inspired by a song. There's this band from the 90s called His Name is Alive. For this kind of this 4AD golf group. And they have a song called Ear... Which is about the Vincent Van Gogh story. It's it's like a narrator talking about like him cutting off his ear and giving it to a girl. And I was driving home one day from a rehearsal space D5, and that song was playing, I was listening to it, and I just pictured in my head that uh, that scene, like the, the opening of the play, or being like, here's a guy with a jewelry box, give it to his date, and it's his ear inside. And I thought of approaching that scene from like the angle of a common like relationship dilemma, which is like that moment in a relationship where you give somebody a gift and you're like, Oh crap, maybe this is too big a gesture. Like, like it's, it's like the first time you see I love you. you it's yeah. like a piece of jewelry or can something. relate to like, that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But but this is the most extreme version of it, where in this case, it's, it's his ear. And I, so and at, when I wrote that scene, I, I didn't know if it was going to be a play. I didn't know what it was going to be at the time. It was just that one scene. You were just fooling around? Yeah, I, just, I was just kind of screwing around. And then I started writing more and more of it, and the story started growing. Because one of the things with the Van Gogh story I always find interesting is, like, what happened to the girl? Like, mm-hmm. the woman who gets the ear. Like, how messed up would that make you to have that happen to you? So I started writing the story in two like tracks, where one track is narrator Vincent, who's this modern day character who goes into an insane asylum, and he meets his doctor, turns to be crazier than he is. He has all these weird adventures in the insane asylum. But then his, his girlfriend, Arata, who gets the ear, weird stuff starts happening to her because she ends up keeping the ear. And I don't want to say too much without spoiling the show, but it's definitely a little bit of a surreal play because okay. there, there's, some, there's some definitely some weird stuff that happens in it. But you'll laugh too. It's meant to be a dark comedy. Okay. Yeah, and people, and th- it's definitely one of those things where it's like, it's not a kid-friendly show. Uh, so I would not bring children because there's like, there's, uh, there's the kind premise kind of this- kinda goes with that. Yeah, but yeah. You'd be surprised, right? No, I get it totally. But, but like, yeah, it's it's meant to be a it's meant to be like a dark dark comedy.
0: It sounds very familiar. You were talking about earlier about how you would write, you'd come up with these stories in your head, like it's the Star Wars world and all that yeah. stuff, and create stories. That's kind of what you're doing here. Um, you're just taking the girlfriend of. The some the
1: the story of the girlfriend that nobody knows that story you know yeah kind of exactly it's just it's like it's, it's like it's like a what if and just expanding on it right and also the thing we writing too is like as I was writing the play like I really had no idea how it was gonna end or like so part of the joy of writing to me is like I had all these discoveries like I'd write a scene and by the end of it it would go in this bizarre one eighty that it felt like somebody else had written it and I didn't. And that's kind of why I enjoy writing those kind of scripts because they go off in these bizarre tangents, and I kind of feel like I'm just kind of there for the ride. I'm not really controlling it; it's just kind of happening.
0: That makes me ask, uh, like, how was your editing process?
1: Eh, it's tricky. Like, like one of the things that was nice about being at the space is at the Space D5 Writers Group, is that we develop this system of feedback and like peer revision that actually is very, it's extremely helpful. Um, because like when I when I finished writing the play, I basically got a group of actors together and a group of playwrights, and we basically sat in an afternoon and they read the play out loud from beginning to end, including stage directions. And then afterwards, all the people there, including the playwrights, would give me feedback. And they'd always start by going, "Okay, so what?" So they'd tell me, "Okay, here's what we liked about it. Uh, here's what here's what confused us. Here's where we dropped out." Like they never say we didn't like this. It would just say stuff like, "That doesn't make sense to me," or "That seemed kind of odd." So so it was it, it, extremely constructive criticism. And so I got a lot of feedback from that, and I basically, I basically did three drafts of the play. So that was like the, th- those were the feedback for the first draft. And then I just did two more. And I mean, basically, I finished writing the play in August, pretty much about three weeks before we started rehearsing for it.
0: Did you know you were going to put it up, or did you just finish it and then you decided to put it up?
1: Oh no! Uh, it's basically I told Dwayne like back in like April, I was like, "Hey, Dwayne, uh, let me know if you need something next season. I got this play I've been working on." He's like, "Cool." And then later on, he's like, "Hey, so we're going to do your play in September," and I was like okay i'm not finished yet i basically i straight up told him like okay cool it's not done but 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 i, I actually i love deadlines because mm-hmm. i think like if i don't have a deadline i can just tinker something forever but if i know okay by august 2nd this has to be finished totally then yeah then i'll, I'll grind it out and that's what happened basically are you getting a pretty good response actually yeah we got really good houses uh first 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 three shows the audience is really into it. It's interesting watching um how differently each audience responds to the show. Like the first night, the audience we had was very somber and serious. And like they enjoyed the show, but they didn't laugh at a lot of stuff. Um which which I can understand because there are elements. You never know from night to night, you know. Yeah. And the show does have horror elements to it. So it's like it's a comedy, but there's definitely some disturbing stuff in it. Whereas night two, Saturday, people were cracking up all night. They were laughing at everything. So which was a pleasant surprise.
0: It's always nice to when people laugh where you uh, hope them to laugh. You know
1: what exactly. I mean? Exactly. <laughs> and then the third day, which was a matinee show, and we had we had, a, we had an almost entirely elderly audience. Oh, God, yeah.
0: Matinee shows are you... – They're cool, It was though. good, though? They liked it. Good, which, good. Which
1: I wasn't expecting them to like it. So nice. I, I, that was kind of a nice surprise. Nice. So it runs through October 1st, Actually, right? For, um, Right now it's closing the twenty fourth. We're looking at possibly extending it. It's possibly. So closing September twenty fourth as of now. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So basically two more. There be there will basically be six more shows.
0: All right. Get out there. Go see it. Um. Stop by Space fifty five. I wanted to go back to we talked about gentrification um sure i always ask my guests a couple questions that have to do with phoenix because phoenix phoenix i feel has come a long way it's not what it was 20 years ago 30 years ago when i was a kid mm-hmm. how do you see phoenix um has changed over the years there's a lot more opportunities out there for sure but how do you how do you kind of look at that oh it's transmit opportunities I,
1: I it's hard to say because i when i grew up like i grew up as a i'm a lifer so i grew up in Scottsdale, like from the. As when I was grew up in Scottsdale, like it was still tons of desert, like we still had like, coyotes running around everywhere. So I mean, you could see in real time the sprawl kind of swallowing yeah. up everything. So yeah, it's definitely in terms of the in terms of how yeah, it's it's easy to see the physical evolution of the place. But I just think spiritually, like Phoenix still feels the way it did ten years ago in a lot of ways. Like there's still that feeling of opportunity. There's still feeling that 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 idea that you could go up to, to a random person in the community and say, "Hey, you want to do something?" And there won't be that resistance of, "Well, who the hell are you?" I think, like, from my, i talked to people I know who moved places like New York and Charlotte and Seattle. I said it's different out there where those more established cities, there's more of a, a resistance. It's actually kind of funny. Um, Kevin Patterson, when he moved to Charlotte, we told him, Hey, dude, if you want to do a seven minutes in Charlotte, like, you have our blessing. Like, you want to do it out there, please. And, he t- and I, I interviewed him a while back. And he said, "Like, Yeah, I tried getting that show to go off the, to do it in Charlotte. And venue people would, like, be horrified at the idea. They're like, wait a minute! You don't vet people, like you don't ask them what they're gonna do. They can do whatever they want. No, like they were like not having it. <laughs> that's too bad. Yeah, wow. but, but it's interesting. Like I think Phoenix is an environment where you could do that, and people won't blink an eye. But I think in a place like New York, for example, they probably want to know. They're probably gonna want like a CV. They're probably gonna want like a, an artist statement before you could do anything. Yeah.
0: No, that's a really cool. That is a good point about Phoenix. Um, what's your next project? What do you see for
1: your future here? i just want to focus more on writing i think mm-hmm. once once the play once the play closes in in september uh and, and plus because the space is going to go by a little hibernation for a month or two as you finally play so it'll give me a chance to kind of just focus on more personal projects but i love to keep performing i know a uh, serene dominic is doing a play called dark lullaby next year that i'll be acting in so i'm looking forward okay. to being in that do you know where it's going to be uh i don't know yet uh if it because if i know uh it might, might maybe it'll be an unexpected gallery or um i because i know it's sherry and joe from the firehouse who did that a they did that production of Labyrinth uh, this year, the Goblin King City, which is a really good musical. And they did it like, at a different venue. So one night it would be at the Firehouse, the night it would be at the Gallery. So I think it might be one of those floating shows where they okay. might do it in multiple spaces.
0: Um, and then kind of like bigger picture here in terms of Phoenix. Like I said, you've, you know, you've seen it grow. You've seen it change. You've seen it progress. What is there, your Phoenix 10, 15, 20 years from now? What does it look like? Or what do you at least hope it looks like, you know?
1: I don't know, because I, I don't want to be nostalgic. Like, I, I don't want to be like, oh, I hope it, I wish it was the way it was 10 years ago. But I do miss that open feeling. And I, I do miss that feeling that that's like, not necessarily in terms of the show, but play, play, like space like the, the Firehouse, for example, where you have these venues where literally you can get all these different groups mingling together and it's not weird. And I feel like when those places close down, we don't really have as much of that commingling anymore. And I think that's kind of a loss. I'd love to see more of that kind of stuff. But I don't know. Like I, I kind of feel like I'm more curious to see. I'd rather be surprised. I'd rather mm-hmm. see a phoenix that I can't conceive of, and one that I can imagine. I'm pretty sure whatever I can think of is probably be better when whatever's in my head. <laughs> good answer. That's a good answer. That's definitely. But also, I mean, I mean, I, I, mean, I live in Phoenix my whole life, and I do love it here. But also, realistically, maybe in five, ten years, it might be somewhere else. I don't know. Everything changes, exactly. right? Exactly. I'm open to getting blown where the winds take me.
0: Nice. On that note. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Even though Space 55 started in 2006, it really feels like it's been there longer, like like forever, like it's always existed. I had recently returned as an actor from Hollywood, only to find that of all places in the valley, I felt most comfortable in downtown Phoenix, which was especially interesting since I grew up in Phoenix, and I lived in a number of towns throughout the valley. I returned during the rise of First Friday and the beginnings of Space 55, a place where you could see affordable theater. Not just the same old tired musicals that everybody and their grandmother has seen twice. No, you could see experimental theater or classics like... Three Sisters by Chekhov, or something edgier like Bloody Merry Christmas, or longer-running shows like Captain Jack's Space Attack, or, of course, the Seven Minute series that Ashley mentioned. Returning from L.A., Space 55 reminded me of the little theaters in Silver Lake or North Hollywood. I have a love-hate relationship with Hollywood, but Space 55 reminded me of the things that I loved about living there. I came to know the denizens of Space 55, which included performers of all stripes and levels, and I'm grateful that I've become friends with many of them. Like I mentioned in an earlier podcast about long-form improvisation in Phoenix, Space 55 was a home where artistic refugees like myself, or like Ashley alluded to, the island of misfit acts. Of course, all this doesn't have to go away, but there was something really special about the corner of 7th Street and Pierce. And I don't mean the plumbing. What I mean is, from the theater's front door, you could once see the fireworks after a winning Diamondbacks game. That was before U of A came in and built multiple stories of concrete. Or the energy emanating from the theater during an evening of seven minutes in heaven. Or being one of the last people in front of the theater in the wee hours of the morning, after hours of conversation and finally helping to carry the last piece of furniture inside. And then the doors would be locked. Alas, another one of Phoenix's venues will go away soon. It almost feels like one of the last remnants of a bygone age. But next year, it will be gone, and soon after replaced with a newer building. All plays must end. This is built into the definition of the word theater. But all things change. So here's to Space 55, to rising up out of the demolition and finding a new home. If you would like to reach us, we can be found at onthegridphx.com or email us at onthegridphx at gmail.com. On the Grid is produced by Chris Ayers. Intro music was performed by local band Factories. They can be reached at factoriesmusic.com. And by the way, sticking with our theme of local, we feature local musical artists on each episode of our podcast. This week, we have the band Treasure Mammal with Cassette. Don't forget to check out Ear, written by our guest, Ashley Naftul, at Space55. And thank you guys so very much for listening to us on our 17th episode of On the Grid.
1: in my